there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of Time for Coffee. I am so glad you press play. If you're curious about how a former member of the armed forces reinvented himself after he left the military, or if you're interested in all the options that await you if you get your law degree other than working in a law firm, then this is the episode for you, my friends. But before I introduce you to Francis Huang, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's the weekly newsletter we send out on Monday morning to give you an overview of the five episodes we're going to be dropping each day that week. Please head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org, and it's right there on the homepage. And while you're there, you're welcome to check out any of the dozens and dozens and dozens of professionals that I've interviewed. They're all organized by profession on the homepage. It's super easy. Now, my friends, it is that time. So grab your mug and take a chug of a wonderful caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Francis Huang, a lawyer, entrepreneur, and retired member of the U.S. Armed Forces who has over 20 years of national security experience with service in every branch of government. He served as a law clerk to the Senate Judiciary Committee and a summer law clerk to Judge Jamie Baker on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. France was also appointed by President George W. Bush as an associate White House counsel and special assistant to the president. Shortly after leaving the White House in January 2009, France got back into his military uniform yet again in support of Operation Enduring Freedom, where he served as the executive officer of a U.S. Army Special Forces company on a seven-month combat deployment in southeastern Afghanistan. France graduated in the top 1% of his class at West Point, got a master's degree in criminal justice, and later a law degree from Georgetown University. And I really could go on and on about everything that France has accomplished and everything he is doing now. But honestly, folks, I need the entire show to do it justice. Instead, please check out the show notes for more details on France Huang's remarkable career to date. Today, he is a partner at FH&H, which is a more than 25 employee law firm, and he's an advisor at Momentum Aviation Group. And in his free time, he's an entrepreneur. And I promise you, we're going to talk about the various companies and ventures that France is engaged in and how Java junkies can learn from his example. France, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Good morning, Andrea. I am, and I am delighted to uh, to be here. Well, I got to tell you, I am exhausted. I don't know how you do it every day, and all I did was just read out loud what you do. I'm not actually doing it, and I'm exhausted just thinking about it. And I didn't even mention all the boards you serve on in addition to your day job. Yeah, you're um you make it sound like I can't hold down a job, Andrea. 
Oh, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> France, could you help Java junkies understand right out of the gate how you juggle all these different ventures? You are wearing quite a few hats. And how many of them are you wearing on any given day? So I wear all of them to some extent on any given day. Um, you know, I, I went to West Point and then served in the military. And I've always been blessed with really not a great need for sleep. I kind of average probably six hours of sleep a night. And so in the past, my solution to every problem uh, was just to work harder. I could just throw more work uh, at any problem and outwork, you know, any anybody else. But, you know, five years ago, I got married. And uh, four years ago, almost, I was blessed with the, the birth of, of my first child, my daughter, Ellie. And, oh. and two years ago, I had the birth of a son, uh, Isaac. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, and all of a sudden, with the birth of my children, my previous time-honored strategy of just working harder wasn't sustainable anymore. The, the price was too high because by working harder, I would be not spending time with my family. And so I had to figure out a different strategy. And so a couple things happened. First, there are things that I used to do I just simply didn't do anymore. Second, there are things that I would personally do that I just let other people do that I previously didn't delegate because, frankly, it was easier for me just to do it myself. And in that process, uh, I realized, uh, much to my amazement, that things still got done. Some things that I was doing didn't need to be done at all. Sometimes a 50 or 70% solution by somebody else, or in some cases, they actually ended up doing a better job than I did, was better than me doing it. And by working less, I actually got more done. And so I sort of approached my time in a new way, which is by having this criteria and asking myself, A, does this really need to be done? Is it critical to the organization? And second, am I the only person that can do it, or am I the best qualified person who's available to do it. And if the answer to those two questions isn't both yes, I don't do it. I either let it go or I find somebody more qualified to do it or I just let somebody do it and don't worry about what happens afterwards in terms of you know making sure that it's perfect. Good enough is good enough. And being disciplined and rigorous by applying that criteria to how I spend my time with every single organization and entity I'm involved in, that's the key that's allowed me to be involved in multiple things at the same time. Now, of course, the price of that, Andrea, is I can't be, you know, quote unquote, the guy, right, in any organization. If you're going to wear multiple hats in multiple entities, you can't be mission critical to any one of those entities such that your unavailability makes that entity non-functional. Right. And so, you know, I'm not the CEO of any of these companies. There, none of these companies or entities or boards are going to come to a critical stop if they can't get a hold of me. So my role tends to be more strategic or I'll dive into a specific thorny project or issue and I limit my involvement to that particular area. But it's an area I feel is critical. It's an area where I feel that I'm uniquely qualified or, or the best qualified person available. Yeah, that that's a really interesting kind of overview of the upside and the downside of having your hand in so many different projects and pots, so to speak. France, could you give us an example of the kind of legal services that you provide, for example, at FH&H at your law firm, the kind of national security counsel that you're giving your clients? So FH&H is a full-service law firm based in Tysons, Virginia. Most of our lawyers have come from 
practice at big law firms or in the national security field, or in many cases, both. Um, And we do the full range of legal services, corporate law, mergers and acquisitions, regulatory compliance. Um, We work with a lot of government contractors. We work with companies that want to go overseas and do international trade and transactions or take foreign investment. And so the whole litany of kind of national security related legal issues that arise when you're a a private company or private individual, my law firm services and helps individuals and companies deal with those legal issues. And what does it mean when you say you're an advisor for MAG Aerospace? What does MAG do? And then what do you do for MAG? So I was on the founding team of MAG. MAG started operations in 2010. Uh, Joe Fluid is, is the founder. MAG provides real-time situational awareness to help make the world smaller and safer. And it does that by taking very high-end, technologically advanced sensors and operating them on planes and drones and takes that information, analyzes it, and makes it into actionable data that can be used by decision makers. So whether that's the U.S. government trying to find narco-terrorists in the jungles of a foreign country, or whether it's a friendly foreign government trying to see what's happening off its coastline, or whether it's a commercial company trying to survey the damage after a hurricane, MAG provides information that allows people to make good decisions. And in terms of my role, you know, I was with the company for almost nine years, actually a little over nine years. And I had a number of roles in the company, ranging from being the president and general counsel to uh, my last role was as the chief strategy officer, where I handled marketing, communications, and mergers and acquisitions. And recently, in the last six months, I transitioned to the board of advisors, where I provide advice to the current executive team on those same issues, but as an outsider. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but Didn't MAG develop because the founder and maybe you and among others was serving in the military, identified a gap, a need, and innovated this entrepreneurial solution? Yeah, Joe Fluitt, the founder of MAG, is a a former Army aviator. He served in something called the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, which is the special operations aviation unit that supports the U.S. Army. And, you know, he flew helicopters in the Army, got out, became a lawyer. We intersected at, at Williams and Connolly. And in 2005, he was recalled to active duty and sent to Afghanistan, where he showed up and was told to build an air force. And so he recruited Afghan pilots, leased Russian helicopters, stood up in a flight school, and is basically the godfather of the Afghan Air Force. And during that time, he spawned the idea, along with other members of the MAG founding team, to create a company that provides what the military calls airborne ISR. And ISR stands for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. And and that's aerial surveillance. That's what I described earlier, the, the operation of sensors on, on aerial platforms like planes and drones. And in my case, you know, I served in the military twice. I've been commissioned twice. I've been honorably discharged twice, first in the 1990s, and then second time in 2009 to 2010 in Afghanistan. And one of the biggest differences I saw between those two periods of time in uniform was just the incredible amount of information we had because of technology in today's battlefield, ability to send a drone or operate a sensor on a plane from 20,000 feet up and see 
not just what somebody's doing, but picking out where that person is a light shirt or a dark shirt from the comfort of your command post is an incredible amount of, of information to have at your disposal. And so we thought building a company that can provide those services would be a wonderful way to continue service, um, is a much needed service to provide and is just very, very intellectually interesting, right? Because it, it requires so many moving parts to be brought together. Absolutely. And I mean, that was just so creative to do that because there are plenty of people who would identify a gap, but wouldn't know how to execute filling it. Yeah, that's that's what good entrepreneurs do, right? They see the opportunity in, in risk, right? They, they'll see a problem and maybe it doesn't have to be a new problem. In fact, you know, it's it's better if it's an old problem and they see the opportunity just to solve that problem, right? To help people deal with that problem by either a product or a service. And in particular, with all the emerging technology in today's world, right? AI, machine learning, UAVs, SaaS platforms, big data, uh, robotics, there are all kinds of potential new solutions that can be applied to very old problems. And entrepreneurs come up with those ideas and most importantly, execute. Build a company that brings that idea and turns it into reality. So a couple of ways that you have executed in addition to with MAG are two startup ventures. One is Chisel Space and the other is Boodle AI. Can you tell us about them? Chisel is a co-working space for lawyers. It is the first of its kind in the D.C. area. FH&H has always been a very entrepreneurial law firm. Um, in fact, when we were thinking about what kind of law firm we are, in our early days of the law firm, we used to define ourselves by either the services we provide, right? We're a full service law firm you know, that provides government contract. Or we define ourselves by the clients that we serve, right? We serve middle market companies. And those things are both true. But really what distinguishes F&H as a law firm is the kind of lawyers that are attracted to the firm and join the firm. And they're entrepreneurial lawyers. And so thinking about how do we continue to grow and expand the firm, when we moved into a new space in Tyson's, we had all this excess space. And we thought, what an amazing and better way to use the space than to create a space for other entrepreneurial lawyers to create. And so we took the excess space we had at the law firm, and we had this 11,000 square foot office, and built it instead of building a, a traditional law firm office, right? Mahogany walls, big partner offices, and you know, closed corridors. We had a very open layout, you know, smaller offices, lots of third spaces, right? Not meeting rooms, not personal offices, but spaces where people can congregate and connect and, and clash with one another and built spaces for other lawyers to come in and and work. And mm-hmm. that was called Chisel. And we built not just the physical space, but we built the kind of internet-based backbone that powers it all and then created programming to help those lawyers develop uh, their practices if they decide to build law practices out of the space. Though not all the lawyers that work in Chisel are actually practicing law. Some of them are creating other entrepreneurial ventures. That would make sense. Um, Boodle AI, (laughs) there's lots of things you can do with a law degree besides practice law. Boodle AI is a company that does what we call persona search, discovery, and messaging. If you have a number of contacts and, and connections on social media networks and in your Outlook book or Outlook contacts or 
Google contacts, you may occasionally, you know, reach out to them. You may, you know, look on LinkedIn and see a status update. But we wanted the ability to really give people the ability to search through and find value in those connections. And so what do we mean by that, right? The ability to take all your contacts and create one large social graph out of them. So if you've got contacts in Facebook and in Google contacts, combine them, and then to resolve who they are in the real world. If you have a Jimmy Smith and a James Smith and a Jim Smith, are they one person or three person? And then enhance that identity resolved set of contacts with hundreds of data points of publicly available information. And then once we have this massive enhanced social graph, we can apply a persona to it, right? We can uh, we can search it for people like most likely to uh, support the March of Dimes or most likely to contribute to a cancer fundraiser. And instead of you having to think about, gosh, you know, I've been asked for $10 to support this charitable donation, what Boodle AI does is it gives you that answer instead. It looks through your contacts, does all the hard work and says, here's the 10 people that you're connected to that are most likely to donate to this particular cause. And it does in a way that keeps your information secure and private. That information doesn't get shared with third parties. It just gets made available to you so that you can then reach out to those folks to raise money in support of a charitable cause. And it goes one step further and actually suggests, Andrea, the message you sent. So somebody goes to you and says, I'd like you to help me raise money for this particular cause. It works through your contacts, tell you these are the 10 people you should contact, and here's the message you used to send to each one. The engine behind Moodle AI helps people find the right person and tells you how to send them the right message at the right time. Yeah, that's really fantastic. What a creative solution to a big problem. France, I listened to another podcast interview that you gave recently, and you said that lawyers by training and design are inclined to identify risks, but that the process of being an entrepreneur is the opposite. An entrepreneur drives toward risk. The fact that you are both a practicing lawyer and a national security lawyer at that and an entrepreneur, does that make you a unicorn? Uh, Luckily, the answer is no. I have met many entrepreneurial lawyers, and it is true. It is true that the training that lawyers get is focused oftentimes on what are the legal risks in the situation and how do we mitigate or avoid those risks? The training to be an entrepreneur is, like you said, the opposite. What are the risks? What are the opportunities and risks? How do we drive towards those and mitigate the risks? There, there are different ways of thinking, but they're not mutually exclusive. And I think good lawyers have a streak of entrepreneurism. They're trying to find a way to yes. I think good entrepreneurs have a healthy dose of skepticism, right? As they're looking for opportunity, they're always mindful of the risks involved. I'm curious, have you ever had a master plan for your professional life? I mean, I'm wondering if how much of your career has been an organic evolution, like those little stacking cups that your small children (laughs) may be playing with, where the little one fits into a bigger one, and then you keep going until you got a half dozen cups that are all neatly stacked inside the biggest cup. Or how much of it was you kind of mapping this out 15, 20 years ago, thinking to yourself, if I go to West Point and serve this country and then go get a law degree, I'll be a force to be reckoned with and I'll blah, 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 blah. Which way has it evolved for you? 
So I've always had a master plan. I've never followed it. <laughs> so <laughs> I, there's a quote from John Lennon I love, which is life is what happens to you where you're, when you're busy making other plans. And that has been absolutely true in my case. You know, I think it's important to have a plan. It drives you towards something, but it's also important to be open to deviations from that plan, right? One of the definitions of plan is it's the it's the standard by which we measure deviations. So yeah, I've I've always come up with a plan, you know, a one year, a three year, a five year, in some cases a five year plan. It's never come true. I always get sidetracked. But frankly, the way I get sidetracked is something comes along that's better than the plan I had, and I'm open to it. One example of that is me becoming an entrepreneur, right? I came back from Afghanistan and I was going to rejoin the U.S. Attorney's Office and continue on my legal career, uh, which is on a particular path. And I was invited by Joe Fluitt to join the founding teams of these companies. And I initially told him no, because it didn't fit within my plan, Andrea. And I said, thanks for your time. This is very interesting, but I don't know anything about business and I'm going to be a lawyer. And then two days later, I'm walking around DuPont Circle and I realize I'm still thinking about that conversation and what Joe told me. And that's when I realized it fell into, into the category of what I call rocking chair tests. So the rocking chair test is when you're 98 years old and you're sitting in your rocking chair and you're looking back on your life, what are the things that, that you're going to regret not having done? Because at that point, you have some time left, but probably not a lot of time to start new things. And so the key is to live your life in such a way that when you're sitting in that rocking chair at the age of 98, the list of things that you regret is as short as possible. And so I realized at that moment that if I didn't say yes and try at least try to be an entrepreneur, I was going to regret it when I sat in that rocking chair. And so I went back to Joe and says, yes, I'm in. Any regrets so far? None. I love it. I love it. That is such a great mental image. Personally, I'd like to wait until I'm in my hundreds to be in a rocking chair, but you know, <laughs> 98 is okay. Uh, France, before I ask you about your time at West Point, would you please share with Java Junkies why you wanted to go to West Point in the first place? And I believe the story goes back to your childhood and how and why you came to the United States in the first place. So I was born into war. Um, I was born in Saigon in 1973. My father was a South Vietnamese army officer. My mother worked for the U.S. Naval Attaché. And this is the closing years of the U.S. involvement with the war in Vietnam. And in April of 1975, the communist forces were closing in on Saigon. And the United States made an incredibly generous and wonderful and amazing decision to bring out as many of its Vietnamese allies people like my, my parents as it could before Saigon fell. And it's, a, it's actually a wonderful, this is a whole separate story, but it was a wonderful decision that was brought about by the cooperation between a Republican president and a, and a Democratic Congress. And uh, my family was one of those evacuated. We came out of Vietnam on April 23rd, 1975, flew to Guam, and then came to Camp Pendleton, California. When we were there, we were trying to figure out where we we're going to resettle in the United States. And Governor Dan Evans um, had sent one of his assistants, Ralph Monroe, down to the camps and moved by what he saw, wrote an executive order saying, you know, the resources of the state of Washington can and should be used to help support the resettlement of these refugees, which was not a, an altogether popular decision at the time. There was actually public settlement was actually against the Vietnamese immigration at the end of the war, according to at least one Gallup poll. Um, and my family was one of those that responded to that call. 
And so we moved to Washington State, uh, where I grew up in a small town called Tumwater, Washington. Fantastic childhood and a, and a great high school football team. But growing up, I felt very moved by a desire to serve, and in particular to repay what I felt was a debt I owed to the United States in general, but to the military in particular, for having rescued me and my family out of Vietnam. There's an alternate universe where my family didn't make it out, and my parents would have been imprisoned or killed, and I'm an, I'm an orphan on the streets of Saigon. Instead of having come to the United States and grown up with all the opportunities that this amazing country offered, and so I was cognizant of that. And so I felt what better way to, to repay that debt than by serving in the very same military that had served me when I was you know, too young to, to know the difference. And so I applied for and got received an appointment to West Point. And that's how, I, that's how and why I ended up going to the United States Military Academy. Thank you so much for sharing that story. So what was your major at West Point? And did you know what you were going to do when you graduated, France? Other than obviously go into the military after you had done your service. I was a general management major in the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership. I really wanted an excuse to take a lot of different classes from a lot of different uh, departments. So maybe my professional ADHD began pretty early. And the there was no business management major. This was the closest thing. And I thought that a degree like that would be useful, not just in the military, but in all the endeavors that I would possibly be involved in. And so, you know, after completing that major, I knew I was going to be joining the military. All graduates of West Point have a five-year active duty service obligation. And we all have the ability to at least state our preference for the branch that we have within the U.S. Army. So a branch is like a job. It's based on class rank. And so I put down my preferences and luckily got my top preference, which was to be a military police officer. Terrific. What about extracurricular activities when you're at West Point? I don't know if they've got you drilling and and working out and obviously studying so much that there really wasn't time for that. But outside the coursework, outside the physical aspect of being at West Point, were there any other activities that you were involved in France that in hindsight, you said, oh, my gosh, I was really actually honing some skills that were useful to me when I did go into the professional world post-military. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, West Point actually has a huge number of extracurricular activities. You know, West Point itself, oldest continuously operating a military installation in the United States. It was started as a garrison during the Revolutionary War to guard and protect a great chain that had been stretched across the Hudson River to prevent the passage of British warships. And so it was chosen for its remoteness, ease to defend and difficulty to attack. Um, That remoteness continues to this day, which means there isn't a lot to do at West Point, except be at West Point. Right. And so cadets have a number of things to do with their with their what little spare time they do have. And so there's a whole host of extracurricular activities. In my case, I chose to actually start one. I started and was the founder of the Law Enforcement Tactics Club at West Point. In hindsight, I realized that I was being an entrepreneur. I was being an innovator. I, I saw something that I wanted. I saw a problem right? And an opportunity, which was there was a number of that were interested in law enforcement or criminal justice. There was no existing cadet club or activity that provided an outlet for that. And so I created something. I created this cadet 
club to to address that need and the same skills that you would use to start a business, right? Identifying the market, identifying the stakeholders, figuring out what resources you need, putting together a plan. I did those things, even though I didn't realize at the time I was being an entrepreneur. But I started that club when I was a sophomore and ran it until I graduated as a senior. Terrific. I just want to let you know that was fantastic. Kudos to you. I wouldn't have joined that club. (laughs) (laughs) So, France, I try to ask all of my time for coffee guests these two questions. The first one is, could you share with Java junkies a time in your professional life when you struggled, whether it was you had a challenging boss, difficult colleagues, maybe I can't imagine you were ever in over your head, but whatever the case may be, there may have been external circumstances that made your work very difficult. But if you could share a quick example, and more importantly, how you persevered. I'll share two quick examples, one from the practice of law and one from being an entrepreneur. So I had actually a fantastic boss uh, when I was in private practice, and he asked me to do a research project. And I attacked the problem with with zest and gusto and used all these, kind of went above and beyond, used all these legal resources, found this great answer. And I, and I was frankly a little proud of myself of the thoroughness of the work I'd done until I received the bill that we get after research is done for how much charges, you know, how much cost is being called charges incurred as the basis of research. And I thought that I had used sources that were covered by kind of the existing all you can eat uh, research plan that the firm had. And it turns out that I had accidentally used uh, resources that w- fell outside that plan. And in fact, used $20,000 resources oh my God. outside that plan. And so I had to go back to the same boss, which frankly, who I admired and really enjoyed working for, which made it actually more difficult and explain my mistake. And and he was terrific. You know, he asked me to walk through how it happened. And he said, look, I want you to make mistakes. I just want you to make new mistakes. This is a new mistake. I'm glad you learned from it. Keep doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And it was he turned what was a frightful, terrifying moment of professional anxiety where I thought that. I was going to be in a lot of trouble into an incredible professional moment that I actually look back on with great fondness and with great respect for for him as a boss. The second example I have is I think a lot of entrepreneurs have stories like this, but you know, after about a year of operations at Mag Aerospace, we initially started doing kind of generic government contracting work. We weren't we weren't an aviation company yet. We didn't have an aerospace or an aerosurveillance contract. We saw the opportunity though to buy into a contract, um, an existing contract, but it required us to do a couple of things. First, we'd have to buy planes that were on contract to the tune of several million dollars. And none of us none of us could get a loan that large and nobody would invest in the company that much. And second, the contract that the planes were on that we wanted to buy was in the process of being canceled by its customer for non-performance. And so in order to like seize the day and buy into this contract, we had to both empty out our 401ks, take out second mortgages, max out credit cards, and essentially put all of our life earnings into buying the planes. And also then turn around the contract because if we didn't and the customer ended up canceling the contract, we'd own several million dollars worth of very expensive paperweights. And so that's what we did. We took the plunge, we went all in. Uh, we emptied out you know, everything we had, bought the planes, and then put you know, 110% of our effort into turning around those contracts. And within 90 days, the customer came back and said, you know, you're doing a great job. 
or we're going to continue with the contract. And that was really the birth of Mag Aerospace's very first ISR contract. And without it, Mag wouldn't be the company that it is today. You know, we've grown Mag to over 350 million in revenue in the seven years since that fateful first leap. And the founding team would never have the mm. opportunity to, to be together the way it would. Fantastic. So final question here, France. If you could go back to college and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I was pretty high strung as a college student. I was kind of an intense young man. Looking back on it, you know, when when I go back and teach at West Point now, because I'm a visiting lecturer there, I always tell cadets there's three things that they're getting out of West Point that are incredibly valuable, besides obviously their commission and and their diploma. But the the first is the leadership skills. The second is their character development. Um, But the third is the relationship they have with their classmates, because those are going to be their their friends for life. You know, they're going to go on this journey together, professional and personal for decades to come. And so they should really enjoy the time now to get to know one another and to forge those bonds. If I could go back and talk to myself as a college student, I'd tell myself to spend more time forging those bonds with my classmates. That is such wonderful advice. France, I want to, first of all, thank you for your service to this country and for making time for coffee with me and the Java Junkie community. You have truly led an extraordinary life and you're so young. There's so much more to come. I know Java Junkies are going to get a tremendous amount of having listened to your stories and your professional path and the lessons that you've gleaned. So thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much. 